Hi, I'm Jacqueline Freeman. And I'm Sarah Korn. You're listening to Kitchen Table Alchemy, living in full color. This is a podcast for people who see and spread the magical in everyday life. All right, well, we're doing a little follow-up on the... um, uh, episode we had, I guess it was two episodes with our guest where we talked about um, white supremacy and how there were a lot of things we don't think about as white supremacy and sort of right. Did but it's a deep not dive. people that are just KKK, right? right exactly. But it is like absolutely everywhere, and it's a lot more subtle than we think it is. And we right. had Carolina Quiet Graham right. uh, as our as our guest that podcast, and so she talked to us about some of the tenets of white supremacy, and both of us were really surprised. Um, by some of the things that showed up for that. Right. And she works with Allies for Racial Equity. So if you're wanting to get back in touch with her or look deeper into that, there's some really awesome show notes because... And I actually redacted those. Uh, Carolina you reduced is, them down to a no, she gave, level. Like, seriously, like six <laughs> pages of links is what she gave me. She, so if you ever need resources, Carolina is your woman. I mean, she is amazing. So um, so that was like the longest show notes we'd ever, ever had. And I did redact it because there's only one page, and I got six from her. But um, but I pulled the links out. There were things that were directly related to or sources that she cited um, during that podcast. But, yeah, it was really some of the things. Things were really surprising, and so some of them have you've yeah, been ticking around is, on. Yeah, yeah, some stuff has kind of come up. So, um, so I listened to another podcast um, called Script Notes that's um, for screenwriters, and it's by these two screenwriters who are you know working in Hollywood and them sharing their insights on the business and the craft of being a screenwriter and all this kind of thing. And sometimes they answer listener mail, and so this one person had had written in and. Uh, was reporting that apparently now there's this shift going on in Hollywood where the studios are finally trying to get more diversity, like actively choosing people of color and women and, um, you know, basically not white males and choosing those people over the white males. And so this um, guy, this new, you know, probably 20-something who's trying to break into the business, um, had written in and said... Um, you know, that he had been told by his agent, like, well, they're not even going to read you because you're a white guy and they're trying to go for diversity now. And, and, you know, and the, the person was like, so this is great for, uh, you know, as a whole, as a society, right, that we're adding this diversity back in, that we are um, finally trying to balance things out and have a more equal representation, right, of our writers in Hollywood. Um, you know, but then as an individual, this guy was asking, as an individual trying to make it in this business, what do I do? And um, uh, and the, the advice that they gave on the podcast was, well, that sucks for you, but, you know, this is a hard business to break into and you should, and he said, Craig said, I give um, you the same advice that I've got given to um, people of color or women who have had the same problem and which is just do the best you can become the best you can at your craft. Um, do whatever is in your power to do. And that's all you can do. Well, sounds like he just needs to get a new agent, frankly, <laughs> um, because we can look on television and see, that it's still not representative 
right? Like yeah. if you look on television, it's quite clear that everything is aimed towards the white male, that there's more white guys on programs, that like maybe there's more people of color and more women slowly coming into things. But it's by no means representative of the actual population, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and a lot of times, if we're if we've been in a position of privilege, being treated like everyone else feels like we're being mistreated. Do you know what I mean? Um, so, uh, and if his if his agent is saying from the get go, like, oh, well, you're a white guy, so you're not going to get it. Like, find another agent. That would be my advice to him. Find another agent because clearly all you have to do is turn on your television to see that there are plenty of opportunities for white men in Hollywood. They are by no means being squeezed out of the business. Well, and it's the kind of business where no matter who you are, it's really hard to get into. I mean, it's like winning the lottery for anyone. Right. Unless your parents are in Hollywood (laughs) and then it's a little bit easier. But, but yeah, no, I think breaking in. And so I think it's really easy for people to, um, to look for other reasons of why they're not getting in, right? And so to to say, oh, it's because I'm a white guy that I've got, you know, it's so hard for me now. Like, it's really easy to say that because it's easier to, to it feels easier to be in that victim place than just recognizing this is, this is a tough business to get in. It's always been a tough business to get in. I'm going to have to get really creative to get my foot in the door, right? And recognizing, but once I do get my foot in the door, because I'm a white man, I actually have larger chances of getting there. Do you know what I mean? Like the, the wheels are all greased for that. So like, and we're seeing this in the Olympic coverage right now. I have been blown away at the sexism in the Olympic coverage. Oh really? Oh yeah. Like, so, uh, Katie Ledesky, is that her name? Right? Like, so, um, she broke her own world record by an entire body length last night. Okay. Um, and so there were all these great memes about like, uh, you know the little Kermit meme where Kermit's like sitting by the window drinking tea? There was one that was like Katie Ledesky waiting for everyone else to finish. Like, you know, I mean, she's amazing. This is really, she is the fastest swimmer in the world. In the world, period, right? So, like, initially with her pre- prelims and stuff, <laughs> one of the sportscasters had said that she swims, she swims like a guy. Because she's fast. It's like, no, she swims like Katie Ledesky. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, so we're seeing this kind of stuff. And they've been making comments about the women's gymnastics team about, oh, they look like they could be standing in a mall. No, they're literally dominating gymnastics right now. Literally dominating the world in their field. And and these comments get made about, oh, they could totally be standing in a mall. But they're not standing in a mall. They just dominated the sport. Do you know what I'm saying? So, like... So even the way we frame things is so set in this particular way that um, if we're like, and it's clear to me too. Also, I mean, I I got my master's in media studies, mm-hmm. so, so this is right up your alley. Yes, <laughs> um, it is, and it's why I had to get out of academia and like go teach women how to love their bodies and like because when we quit buying into these messages, they will quit they will quit propagating them, right? And so it's been really exciting in this, I think, in this Olympic Games, because social media is as strong as it is now, they are getting a ton of pushback. And I'm really hoping that it's going to shift how they report next time, right? Yeah. So, um, because a lot of women are just like, this is absolutely ridiculous. Like, what is your problem? Do you know what I mean? But, um, like, so it's that, uh, I, I think... 
it's not just the incidences of things happening. And it sounds like in this case, he wasn't told by, by casters, no, we're going to have, um, we're going to have an Indian guy be in that role this time. Right. Like he was told by his agent, Oh, well, I'm not even going to put you up for it. Cause yeah. do you know what I'm saying? A screenwriter. Yeah. Oh, screenwriter. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. um, but, um, and for like, uh, if you've, have you ever seen master of none on Netflix? I have. Yeah. It's disease on sorry's. Um, I saw the first episode or two of it. Okay. Yeah. I, I love that show. I just think it's absolutely <laughs> fantastic. And he does one on Indians in Hollywood or Indians on screen or something like this. And so I think he does such a great job of showing, like, okay, I can get in for a role. Like, great, there's ca- they're casting Indian guys for this. Well, what are they casting? Cab driver with a funny accent. Like, right, you know, yeah. so he does this reading, and he, he does the lines, like, straight, you know? Yeah. And, and they're like, um, that's awesome, but could you do an accent? <laughs> and he's like, um, I'm not really comfortable doing the accent. Like, I can be a cab driver and just... Talk regular English, right? right. Fluent, regular like yeah. American English without an accent, because because I, I am Indian, up. right? And I talk English in an American accent, right? So like, and they were like, "Okay, great, yeah, I totally understand. We'll call you." And he's like, "But you're not going to call me, right? Because of the accent thing, you know what I mean?" <laughs> right? Yeah. And so like, it's just exactly. like, no, no, we're not. <laughs> and um, and then he goes and talks to one of his friends about it, and the guy's like. What the accent's really easy. I just do an impression of my uncle Boo Boo. You know what I mean? And like, and he's like, of course I know how to do the accent. I don't want to do the accent. Like, don't yeah. you think it's like degrading that they're constantly doing this to us? And um, and then he goes out for another show, and the the writers for the show decide they can't have two Indian guys because then it becomes an Indian show, <laughs> and the the subtext is white people won't be able to relate and will not want to watch it. If there's too many Indians, right. it is no longer relatable to me as a white person, which is like, okay, whatever. I don't agree with that, obviously, but but this is the way that the writers perceived it to be. So they were only going to have one Indian I've character I've noticed on that it. very much in, um, in Hollywood stuff, that there's like... The way they do diversity is they'll have like one person who represents right. each thing and everybody else is white. Totally. You know, so you have the token Asian person, the token the Mexican, all the token the Asian stereotypes. Person. Yeah, right. totally. So like they're not and a even white like, woman or two. Or, right, right, exactly. Right, yeah. exactly. We can't have too many because they need to spend all their time talking about boys and crying into vats of ice cream, <laughs> right? So they won't like, you know. So I mean, so it, it's like when we talk about diversity, like um, I call call it Pharaoh's mirror, right? That's what I started calling it when I was, um, when I was doing my master's in the, in the media studies stuff. It's like, and it's, that's really drawing on this sort of like Abrahamic traditions, right? Where the Pharaoh stands for, um, materialism, greed, oppression, tyranny, like this kind of stuff, right? The Pharaoh within, um, the Quran and the, the Bible and the, and the new Testament, that is a metaphor for, like tyranny and greed and, and materialism. Right. So, so I call the media Pharaoh's mirror because everybody looks distorted. Right. And so we keep like wanting these fair representations in the media, but the longer we look in this mirror, the more distorted the images become and nobody feels good after they look in that mirror. Right. Right. Um, that's not a white guy. I don't know. Maybe white guys are like, oh, this guy's awesome. I totally feel validated by these characters. But I don't know anyone who isn't a white man 
that can point to a character in film or in TV series where they fully say, I feel validated by this character. I feel empowered by this character. There's not any space in this character that makes me feel like I'm lacking in some way. Right. So like if there's a female character that's really like powerful or whatever, then she's like clearly has a full time job training and weight competition because her body is so completely cut and has like a 2% body fat or what you know what I'm saying? Like, so you may feel empowered by her getting out there and doing her thing and kicking butt and taking names or whatever. But then you feel disempowered by the way she looks because well, it's like the high heel thing. Like, have you ever noticed that, um, women, female characters who are like in a warrior type of character, like, um, Oh gosh, what's her name on Avengers? And you see it with any like sort of badass, you know, kick butt female warrior. They always wear high heels. Oh, and it's like because who the heck would when I'm would doing go taekwondo, I like to pull out my seven inch platform. Right. Yeah. It's just it's one of those things. I just roll my eyes every time I and Seriously. it's like without fail. Like you will yes. never see a woman kicking butt in flats like ever <laughs> i know right yeah no because the guys exactly. she's gotta look hot while she's kicking exactly. butt exactly <laughs> and i haven't gone to see ghostbusters yet but this has been the thing that i've been hearing from my friends about ghostbusters mm-hmm. is that like i've had friends that started crying in the middle of the movie because they realized they're all wearing flats <laughs> they're eating food like normal people they're right. not crying into vats of ice cream they're just they just totally kicked ass and now they're hungry so they're going to eat a meal do you know right. what i mean like um <laughs> instead of yeah so like they just started crying because they realized this is normal female experience and i've never seen it on a screen before and they start crying oh, wow. like that's how powerful it is Huh. For us to see normal women acting like normal women, and they're not being some part of the character that like thirty percent gets us really excited and we love them, mm. and then the rest of it makes us feel bad about ourselves, right? To have a character that fully, like, you know, I can relate to her on every way, and everything about her makes me feel validated, mm-hmm. right? Like that is such a rare thing that there are women all over the country crying in Ghostbusters theaters because we've never seen it on a screen before. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, it's really... And it and it is remembering that this is Pharaoh's mirror, right? And if you're thinking about a camera, um, there's always a frame. So there's always things shut out of the frame, right? right which is going to provide its own distortion on reality. And then it's a two-dimensional screen, so we're seeing things in flat form. We're seeing it in yeah. two dimensions. And we're obviously not two-dimensional characters, right? So anytime we're looking in that space, um, we're, we're, we're going to... seeing part of the picture. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's very distortive, and it's really... Um, I remember in my... Um, this was in my undergrad. What class was it? was it anthropology of gender? And we were, there was a study that was released, um, that was talking about how, uh, like 20% of white women, um, were overweight, but 80% of them did not like their bodies, right? They had some form of body dysmorphia and for, uh, black women, it was like 80% of the women are considered overweight, but only 20% of them, had body image issues. And so we were talking about this study in class 
And I had said then, and this is in the early 90s, I was like, wait until more black women start getting on television. We're going to see those patterns shift. Mm. Because right now, black women are not on television. They're not in movies. And so their example of what a woman is, is their auntie, their mom, their grandmother, their sisters. And they see anyone over the age of 14 has cellulite. That is a fact of life. Go to a water park in the summertime. The only people not wearing Bermuda shorts and baggy t-shirts over their bathing suits are 13 and 14 year old girls, right? Like, it's true. And they're the only ones without the cellulite. Everybody else has got cellulite. Everybody else is wearing a Bermuda shorts. Everyone is like really conscious. So like, um, but if you're not represented in the media, the only people you have to look to are real people. And then you realize, oh, well, all women have cellulite. All women's butts wiggle when they walk. All women, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, nipples point down because babies need to eat and these are for food. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right, this is yeah. like reality, yeah. right? Yeah. So, but since white women are so covered in the media, we look at these images and think that's what reality is, right? right? And then even for those women, it's their job to look good. Yeah. It is their full-time, full-time job, job to look, to look good. Yeah. And it's not good enough. They still get edited out. They yeah. still get photoshopped. photoshopped. Yeah. They still have <laughs> body stand-ins for certain for certain body parts. Yeah, I remember it's when I heard that. It's their job. Like, really? And it's not good <laughs> enough, you know? Like and we're we're looking in the sparrow's mirror and not liking it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But um uh but yeah, like this idea of the um reverse discrimination or whatever when I was um uh, home, was it two years ago now for 25th year reunion? Um, so we spent a few days in Memphis and then we met my brother and his family down in Florida. And, um, there's a woman that I went to school with that, um, has a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? She has a column in the, in the Memphis paper and she's a black woman. And so, and her column is amazing. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And so, uh, my brother had pulled out all these yearbooks. So I'm like flipping through these yearbooks, um, with Jason and telling like, Oh, this person's going to be there. This person's going to be like telling stories, whatever. And he's very patient and pretended like he cared. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> like it's fabulous for me to go down memory lane. I don't know that he cares at all, but he's really <laughs> lovely and he pretends like he cares. Oh, wow. That's really, Oh, that's great. Is that the one that so-and-so? And so, um, <laughs> but I was like, Oh, uh, Wendy's going to be there. And my sister and I'm like, Oh, was she in your class? And I was like, yeah, she was. And I knew what she was going to say. So I like, turned the page and kept talking because I didn't want to hear it. And so, um, uh, and then when we got down into Florida, we are driving down the 309A, I think it is. It's a super borgy highway that goes through all this like vacation villages in, in the Florida Riviera or whatever. So there's all these five-story beach houses with balconies on either side. And you know what I mean? Like super, I mean, it was lovely. We had a lovely time, but it's super, super borgy, right? And um, so we're driving down the 309A in the Toyota Highlander or whatever, the like $45,000 Toyota SUV thing. So we're going down the 309A in a Toyota Highlander with like 30 pounds of like jumbo golf shrimp in the back. And like John's got his gray goose like caught greyhound right here, you know, and, and he said something about, uh, Wendy and he was like, well, she just makes everything about race. And I'm like, well, I'm sure as a black woman in Memphis, Tennessee for her, everything is about race. That makes total sense to me. Right. Yeah. 
you know who's got a, you know who's got it really hard these days is a white man. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm like, you know, John, driving down the 309A in a Toyota Highlander with Grey Goose in your cocktail and 30 pounds of golf shrimp in the back, I'm having a really hard time believing that you're struggling. So I think we should just talk about something else, right? <laughs> and it was really interesting that night at dinner because um, he was cooking dinner that night. And um, this was the first time I was able to really make this connection, and I'm so grateful to the universe for helping me do that because it, it has traditionally been very, very hard for me to find any kind of empathy for people that have these kind of ideas because um, I just see the oppression and the hurt that comes from it, right? Mm-hmm. But um, at dinner that night, so he's making dinner. He did way too much stuff because, you know, I come from a long line of overachievers. So, um, so he's stressed out, and dinner's running a little bit late. But, like... You know, there's three of us helping him chop. There's somebody helping him with the grill. There's somebody else, like, feeding cocktails to the in-laws on the third balcony. You know, like, everybody is helping him get ready for this. And he didn't see it. He did not see the help, right? Mm. And when we did get dinner on the table, like, it was so delicious. I mean, it was just, my brother's fantastic. Especially give the boy around a grill and he's, he will absolutely blow your mind. And like, so everyone's like totally involved in this meal. Nobody is talking because it's so good. We're all just like totally involved, you know? So you just hear like, mmm, and smacking sounds and all this kind of stuff, you know? <laughs> and like, and like as people were coming to sit down, I think his father-in-law or maybe it was his mother-in-law had made just a really quip little quip and to me, it was clear that they were joking, right? But they were like, finally we get to eat, right? But John heard that as a criticism. Right. So he didn't, and he didn't see all the help. He didn't see all the assistance that he's getting. He didn't see that this was clearly a joke. And if anything, it was like, it's like, who finally God, we get to, we eat, get to delicious eat food. Exactly. Right. Yeah. right? We've been, like, I've been looking this. forward to this. Right. Yeah. I've been looking forward to your night anyway, because we know you're amazing. And then it smells really good. And right. No, but he heard it as like, oh, why did it take you get so your long? crap together? Yeah, yeah. totally. Um, and so it was fat, like, and he responded to that really defensively. Right. And it was, so I really got to see all the way across the line, how, this like persecuted white male sort of victim archetype mentality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it's so hard for the white man. Like, I got to see how that went across to just not seeing how much help you're getting, mm-hmm. right? Like, and because he doesn't see all that support, he doesn't feel all the love that's coming that that support is coming from, right? Right. So, so he's trapped in this place of feeling persecuted, feeling upset, feeling angry, feeling slighted when that is not what's happening around him. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so it is one of the things that I think is really, I know that a lot of people, uh, talking about white privilege, talking about white supremacy, talking about racial equity, like these are things that are really difficult conversations and it makes people really uncomfortable. Brene Brown has said, for us to have a, con- a real conversation about race in this country, we're going to have to deal with a lot of shame, right? right. Um, but I think the invitation to the conversation is that as I recognize my privilege, I'm also standing in a place of gratitude. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. yeah. That's so powerful. I think, and as you were talking, I, I just was like, yeah, there's basically two 
like critical pieces to making that all work and shifting that. And one is what you just talked about, which is having gratitude for whatever it is you have and acknowledging that some of it was through your own effort and some of it was good fortune, you know, and sometimes fortune blesses us and sometimes it doesn't. And that's just kind of the world we live in, but we can still be grateful for what we have. Right. And then the other piece of it is empathy and, um, and that one is a little challenging and that's what I've kind of struggled with. I mean, back when I did that post on Facebook where I was like upset about something and then I vented and, you know, I was coming from this sort of victim place and, and I was like, why doesn't anyone have any sympathy for me? And, and, and so I've noticed that there's this, there's this thing that happens is that when you feel that you have been wronged or that something is unequal or unjust, you feel that, um, you know, that hurt, that anger, that suffering of some sort, whether it's to an extreme degree or to a mild degree of, oh, everyone's expecting me to have this done sooner, right? It can be anything. It's, it, and it's almost like how big a deal the thing was is not actually even, it, it could be a little thing that makes us right. feel like we've been wronged or, or that life is not being fair to us or something like that. And, and I find that sometimes what happens is that when someone expresses that, which granted is kind of coming from that victim space, right? That someone answers back with, well, but you shouldn't feel that way. You should be grateful or, well, you know, so-and-so has it worse than you do. And, you know, like you, you know, you're a white person, you have all this privilege. Racism doesn't happen to you, you know, which is not true. It can, you know, well, like we talked about racism is, is bigotry plus political power. So as a white person, racism cannot happen to you because we're on the top of the political power here. Okay, then yeah. bigotry, I guess, is right. what yeah. I'm talking So we can okay. totally be the victim. Right. Like, we can we have can... bigotry aimed at us, but right. not racism. Yes, yeah. exactly. So I hadn't realized that distinction, actually, so I'm glad you brought it up. Um, yeah, so so I realized that the the key is to have empathy for that person. Just sort of acknowledge, like, okay, I see that you experienced that, that that's how you're perceiving that, that's how you're feeling about it. And I think that's a critical first step to then being able to help them shift into that place of gratitude, into seeing what it is that they do have, what they can do. Um, because a lot of times when, you know, we, someone complains and then you say to them, well, but, you know, <laughs> here's the good side or here's why I disagree with you. All they hear is, you're not taking me seriously. And then that gets in the way of having that open dialogue and shifting into a more empowered way of viewing this situation. So that's something that I... There's so much going on there. Yeah. And it's a a fine line between sympathy and empathy, right? Between validating their victim place versus... Validating the ego... (laughs) Right. Right. It's like how do you how do you and acknowledge their pain without being like, without Oh yeah, you're a victim without right. strengthening their ego. Right, exactly. And I and I will say as a caveat, people of color do not 
need to take these t- I'm just going to say that. Like, they're bearing the brunt of racism. It is not their job to make us feel better when we're confronted with how racism works. Do you know what I'm saying? So I want to take that burden off of them. Like, we hmm. we have the power. So white people can right. have that well, conversation with each other. Well, I guess it's not other. really anyone's job because you, everyone well, gets no, a choice. I think, I everyone think gets a, lot a choice. Of, I mean, if people are already talking out of this, like, ego victim place... Then and it happens a lot to people of color or uh, people that are not cisgender or people that are not heterosexual or right like whoever's falling outside of that majority, it happens a lot that they are held responsible for people's lack of willingness to open their eyes. So they'll say like, "Oh well, you didn't treat me with empathy when I was really sad about how I realized that I've been shitting on you all the time." You know what I'm saying? Like it's not their job to make us feel better. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I would agree with that. Right? It's, no, it's, it's well, not it's their no job, one's to, make job to make anyone feel better. It's a choice. You get to decide. I agree. Whether or but not I just want to, I just want to say, so if we're like, yeah. okay, when you're having these That's conversations, try to like say, God, I know it feels that way. Sometimes it's really frustrating, but here's the deal, right? Like that you have a, a step of empathy and then move over. Um, I think even that part of the conversation, it is, it is, perpetuating the problem by expecting those that are marginalized to have that step in the conversation. Does that make sense? So, um, and, and I think that it's really, it's really important for people to understand, for people to understand that. So I think think when white people are talking to white people or straight people are talking to straight people, like, okay, yes, we can, we can use that as a tactic. Do you know what I mean? But it's not fair to expect those that are already carrying the weight of this to also worry about our fragility while they're trying to... I mean, we should be glad that they're telling us anything, right? And this is the thing. Like, a lot of people don't want to have to deal with that. They don't want to have to deal with the emotional splashback. They don't want to deal with somebody getting mad at them because they just said, this is my reality. They don't want to deal with like trying to comfort someone because they start crying because they realize what's going... Do you know what I'm saying? So they won't tell you. Right, yeah. a lot of you'll you'll you know, and it's like we said. Yeah, with no, Carolina. I understand. That's yeah. why I won't have those conversations. Like that's either. what we said with Carolina. Like people <laughs> are like, oh, well, I've got black friends. Well, you've got very patient black friends. Do you know what I mean? Like, so we we need to like understand that um, that there's that element to it. But I would definitely say, you know, if you're like peer group to peer group, right? Then then taking an extra step, right? Because when we're talking to people that are like Carolina that are working in talking to white people about white supremacy, right? Then for people on that level, yes, like having a place of learning to cultivate empathy and not get into the us versus them thing Hmm. is really powerful. And I think that is the thing to work on as Hmm. activists because it's really, really hard, right? And I know for me right now, that is the focus of my spiritual struggle and practice is not getting into the place of of othering, right? right? Like we spend a lot of time about talking about othering people of color, othering uh, homosexuals, othering trans people, othering, right? Like we talk, you know, so we talk about othering these people that aren't white Protestant Christian, but like I'm in a space where I have to be careful not to other the white Protestant Christians. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> so that's, like, that's like, the danger, right? Yeah. 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 So, but I do want to, I do want to caveat that like, please. And I, if these things are sparking things for you and you want to have conversations, I'm really excited about that, but please do not, please do not expect those that, you know what I mean? That have been mm. bearing the brunt of this 
to also like have to be really sweet about it. And I, and you know, the Mm. thing is like, um, and like the sweet little lamb in me wants to go, yes, we should always be sweet to everyone all the time, you know, (laughs) but I know in my own walk, the stuff that brought me the farthest was actually when friends of mine lost their patience with me. And they Mm. weren't nice to me about it. And they, you know, they were having a hard day and a whole bunch of stuff had happened. And then I came traipsing in with my little white girl guilt. And they were just like, you know what? I don't have the time for your crap right now. And I was like, what? You know, I mean, like in the moment, I'm not saying I was fabulous when it happened. Like, you know, in the moment, I'm just like, oh my God, I can't believe they said that. Right. And I would be like really upset about it. But it just kept like banging around inside of me right Mm -hmm. it made me really itchy and irritable and restless and so I had to keep going over and over and over it and it brought me to a place where I like finally quit fighting it and actually listened to what they said Mm -hmm. right and recognize the truth there and then I was able to make these leaps right and so there were these people along my way that basically lost their temper with me lost their patience with me and it was in their like God, white girl, what is your problem? Right? right. That made me go, whoa. It was like this shock, right? That, yeah. that woke me up and got me to the other, like to the next level on, mm. of understanding. Do you know what I mean? So, um, so, so as much as the sweet little lamb in me would love for it to always be sweet and wonderful, I, my own path has shown me that it doesn't always work that way. Right. And that, um, that if I'm willing to really listen to people. And I think everybody has some part of their self, their life, their identity, their story that they feel marginalized about. Absolutely. Everybody Everybody has a part of themselves that they feel like is not acceptable, that they feel like people judge unfairly, that they... So if we can relate to how that works and how we feel, right, in that space... And then recognize that everyone else feels the same. That when someone tells us something, when they're gracious enough to share their experience, for us to step back from that eager reaction that wants to defend ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. And defensiveness was one of the li- things that Carolina had on her list. If we can step back from that for a minute, um, then we we can actually learn a lot from being able to, to really listen to what they're telling us. Okay, so then the other thing that I was really surprised that was in um, Carolina's list like of like list white of- supremacy things was time urgency. And um, but after we talked about it, I started really noticing it everywhere that everybody's in a rush, and there's really this expectation that you've always got to be doing more and. And noticing not only that this is something that is in our society and coming from other people, but it's something we've internalized. Yeah. And and I was this past week I was at the Nabo luncheon where um, our guest Stephanie Panacci, who's a futurist and is um, an expert on sort of what is coming down the pipeline in terms of technology and that kind of thing, and she was talking about how uh, as we've gotten better technology that has allowed us to do things more quickly and more efficiently that we've sort of had this same expectation that we're supposed to be more efficient. Like we're supposed to be as humans accomplishing more and doing more. And that like this, and she talked about how the smartphone really blurred the lines between work and home because now you can check your email, you know, 24 seven. 
And, and really just, I think it's so valuable to realize that and to examine it. And one of the things that I loved about Stephanie's speech was it kind of made me realize, oh, like, it's not my fault that I'm not, well, maybe that's the wrong way to word it, but it's like this, it's not that I'm not good enough or that I'm not getting enough done or not working hard enough. This is just sort of the society that we're living in. There are these expectations and I can either choose to keep those expectations for myself or now that I'm aware of it, I can choose to change my expectations. And so that's what I've been doing over the past month or so is really just saying, no, this is the timeline that I'm going to do this on. You know, this is, this is a realistic goal of when that can happen or how quickly I'm going to get to such and such and, and making, instead of it being like, Oh, I didn't get through my to-do list. Instead being like, okay, these are my top priorities right now, so I'm going to work on them in that order, and I'll get done as much as I can get done, and whatever I don't get done will be there tomorrow, and the next day, and the next year, you know, if if I choose. So I think it's a great example (laughs) of how the white supremacist structures hurt all of us, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, But I wanted, so I'm curious... How do you see... Because it was shocking to think about it, right? There were right. so many things that's like... That has nothing to do with race, you know, or right, power, but, or does but it? But then you like, oh, wow. If you start thinking about it, you're like, wow, actually it has everything to do with like race, culture, and power. But like, what kind of... Um, how do you see that as being connected to white supremacy, This that sense of time urgency? I think... Um, you know, I, I think it all goes back to our expect, expectations um, and um, uh, what kind of expectations we have for ourselves and for other people. And, right. and, I, and I see stereotypes as being an expectation, right? I see someone of a certain color or certain age or certain race or whatever, gender, and I make certain assumptions about them based on stereotypes. And, and really this is something that our brain does. It likes to categorize things. And so that it's because it's a shortcut because, um, our cognitive functions, our executive functioning, the part that makes decisions and consciously processes information can only do so much. And so it's looking for efficiencies, right? How can I quickly figure out what something is, make a decision about it and move on to something else. And so, stereotypes are just a natural way that we, we categorize. And so it's, there's that opportunity for us to constantly start questioning those things. And for me, it's really about looking things, looking at things on an individual level and saying, what is best for me as an individual? How can I look at someone else and see their individual experience and go, well, like we were saying earlier, well, that's what's been their experience. That's what's true for them. Even if that's not what has been true for me, you know? Um, and so I don't know. It's, it's just sort of, it's taking the power away from what society says we should be. And instead saying, this is how I'm going to choose to look at it. And this is how I'm going to choose to behave. Yeah. We had a, uh, we had a, we've got some folks, uh, hanging out with us today while we're uh, podcasting. And so um, we were having a conversation right before we turned the mic on about um, as we're like, okay, here's what we're going to talk about today. So in the the short conversation that happened around the the time and the urgency, um, 
uh, our like friend that's in the room today was saying that she'd had a conversation with a, with a friend of hers that had said after generations and generations and generations of living in slavery, you get to a place where you don't look to be super efficient. You don't look to stand above the rest of the crowd because that made it hard for everybody. Right. So when we're, when we're looking that, I think that can be one of those places where we see how, how we deal with time, how we deal with urgency, how we look at efficiency. There is this down, down race lines thing that starts to happen. Right. Because in our culture, we do think, well, you should always be more efficient. You should always be better than everyone else. You should always, and that being better than everyone else is very much an American versus like, right. Europeans Mm -hmm. don't see it that way. Like, um, I was like horrified actually when I got, and it made me really scared actually when I got to Holland. There's all these idioms about the tallest head of corn is the first one that's cut off, and you know, tall poppy syndrome. Yeah. So like you know, like <laughs> I've heard about that. any yeah, like the tallest wind, the tallest tree catches the most wind. You know, like all this kind of. They have all these idioms about you better not stand out because like death and destruction await you if you stick yeah. out from the crowd at all. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. so that like, Oh, I have to stand out. I have to be better than everyone else. I have to be right. Like that's a very American, um, sort of manifestation of white yeah. supremacy. Right. But we see that when it comes to other groups, th- having that mentality actually meant they're making it worse for their mom, their dad, their brothers, their sisters, their friends, Right. Because if they're picking cotton really fast, well, then why aren't the rest of y'all picking cotton as fast as they are? Oh, okay. Right. So now everybody's expected to have this really fast pace. Right. Mm. And, and, and not everyone can. Right. Right. But, you know, and, um, and the word like cracker, right. So the, like racial epithet for white people or whatever. I'd always wondered like, what does that mean? Does it mean we're like crumbly and flaky? Like I didn't, right. you know what I mean? I didn't know what that meant right. for a long time. Thought Cause I thought too. like saltine yeah. crackers or something, right? <laughs> They're like boring and you eat them when your stomach They're is white. sick. Like, yeah, yeah I, just, I didn't know. What it meant. But actually I found out that cracker came from slave drivers. Oh, cracking the whip. Cracking the whip. Oh. So even a racial slur is still recognizing our power. Do you know what I mean? That's like, crazy. So, oh my god. I know, right? It's like, ooh, ooh, that's hard, you know? But um so like so standing out from the crowd and everyone having to come up to that, like we do have the sort of like, oh, competition makes everyone faster and it makes everyone better and yeah. you know, and especially like Olympic spirit. Like you hear the athletes talking a lot about how they use those in the race with them as their inspiration to push that much further and get out in front of the crowd or whatever. But in situations where people are being like horrifically impressed, you don't do that because now, now you, you in, in slavery times, people could be killed for that or they'd be whipped for that or they'd be right. Right. Now it means maybe they get their pay docked, maybe they lose their job, maybe they, right. So, um, so those are the kind of places where we can see how that leans out. Right. And then how we judge people. But then, um, I love that you brought up this aspect of how it impacts us, mm-hmm. right? Like it, um, this idea that we're supposed to always move faster, do more, take care of more. And then 
that bigger, better, faster, more really is the ego's MO. Right. Well, like, right. It's the ego saying you have to be better than everyone else if you want to survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And not just about survival either. Like ego just, just wants to be, you know, it wants to be like right. it's, ego always thinks in terms of best. I'm either better than everyone or I'm worse than everyone. Right. Like it's well, very difficult for the, the ego can't see level playing field. Well, and I think the way I see it is that the, that being whatever it takes, cause there's physical survival. Like I want to have enough food and not get eaten by the tire and that kind of thing. But then there's social survival. And so I found that the ego is usually very concerned about, well, what is going to allow me to survive socially? So in a society where standing out and being the best is how you survive and, and become great socially, then the ego is going to drive towards that. If you are in a society where surviving socially means being like everybody else and not standing out and being normal or being average or whatever, then the ego is going to drive you to do that. I don't, and sometimes no, I don't both, it really wor- depending Yeah, I don't know on, that it really works that way. The ego is self That's what I found from my yeah, experience. Like the ego is self-destructive. So right. it's, it's not that concerned with survival or it wouldn't. Well, no, I thought my, my, uh, what I found is that it, it's like in its attempt to save you, it kills you, you know? And if, if you kind of think about like that, you know, that monkey trap where there's a bottle with a narrow neck in the, and you put some food inside it and then the monkey like puts their hand in and grabs the food. But then when they're making a fist, they can't like pull their hand back out again. And so it's, it's kind of like. Um, actually, you know what is actually, you know, it's a better metaphor for it. So (laughs) I I was watching it. You know how in whenever there are like movies where there's a prophecy like this, like in Willow, you know, like there's a prophecy that this, this little, this newborn baby is going to grow, gonna end up, um, bringing about the death of this evil queen. And so the evil queen, her desire is to like find this baby and kill it. But then ironically, because she's trying to kill the baby, she sets into motion the series of events that causes her death. Right. <laughs> and so right. in this sort of indirect, like by trying to stop the prophecy from coming true, it comes true. And you see that a lot in stories where whenever there's a prophecy or prediction and they try to stop it, they end up causing it. Yeah. So I, I feel like the ego is kind of like that. There's this prophecy, right? You're going to die. You're not good enough. You're whatever. And so in its attempt to prevent that from becoming true, your ego causes the things even faster (laughs) right exactly so um so so it's kind of that's sort of how i see it and and so it's always you know it's just something i have to watch out for (laughs) it's definitely like so it's um and i also am am like approach my i spent many many years trying to get rid of my ego because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. I've heard that too. (laughs) Um, And so I spent a lot of time trying to track it down and trying to kill it and trying to starve it and trying to write. And um, I just made it stronger, I think. And then, um, and so then I thought, you know, this is such an integrate, like this is such a seminal part of human experience. There must be a reason for it. Right. Mm, Right. Um, If it was not supposed to be here, then it wouldn't, or it'd be a lot easier to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so then I started having a different, a different approach. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And it is one of my beefs, and we've talked about this before, it is one of my beefs with sort of the modern church's interpretation of Jesus's teachings, Mm. right? Is that it gets people to identify with the ego and say, I am corrupt, I am broken, right? Mm. As opposed to identifying with divinity and seeing the ego as sort of like a jacket that's here on this planet, right? It's just here. Once we're off this planet, we don't have it anymore, right? Mm. So, um, but if we're identifying with it, that's when we have the problems because then it's in the driver's seat. Right. And if it's in your driver's seat... When we think that's all who we are. Right. Right. If it's in your driver's seat, it will destroy your life because it's self-destructive. That's what it does. And, um... And it was so funny. I remember one time, Miles was like, I don't know, seven or eight. And I was really frustrated about something that was happening and um, was talking to a friend about like, oh, and these people, they say they want this and yet they do this and this and this thing that makes that impossible to happen. Like, what is the problem? I don't understand. We, we agreed this was the goal, you know. And Miles is just like playing with his Legos in the side of the room or whatever. And he looks over and he's like, mom ego duh <laughs> i was like whoa like you know <laughs> so for him it was like well they're working out of their ego so of course they're moving against their own goals right yeah like that's what ego does that's what you've always taught me duh you know but yeah it was one of those oh, like funny. teaching the thing i needed to learn myself kind of thing do you yeah. know what i mean but um but if it's in, if we're identifying with it, then it's in the driver's seat, mm-hmm. right? If we coddle it too much, it, g- it gains power. So that's why, right. like in the last segment, talking a little bit about empathizing with people, but also not empowering their ego, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of goes back to our episode on rider to rider, right? That we're talking rider to rider instead of rider to horse mm-hmm. or horse to horse, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like we want to have those rider to rider conversations. Um, so I, but so like if we're empowering the ego or empathizing with the ego, these kind of things, then it, it gains power and it's in our driver's seat. And then that's how we get to the place where we're like, this is not what I wanted to do. I tried everything not to do this this time. And here I am again. How did this happen? Like, you know, but if we're, um, recognizing that the ego is something that we have on this planet and find what its purpose is, right, then it can let us know something's in the atmosphere, right? So if my ego flares up, then it's like, okay, somebody here is a, is is threatening or has bad intentions or... Do you know what I mean? Mm, like it's like a warning signal, right? So yeah. it's like okay, I I see the ego flare. I know to pay attention now, but I'm still going to pull that chokehold and get it out of the driver's seat. It doesn't get to decide right. how I'm yeah. going to deal with it or do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that's yeah. That's so. That's what I'm doing with my story too. Where there's a a character who there's she actually has two. There's two other characters that are really her ego and her soul. And so and that's one of the that's one of the points where once she realizes that that's the case, she's like trying to get rid of the ego and then realizes that she can't and that there are actually some instances in which 
it can actually be helpful. But those are limited instances, and you kind of have yes. to know what they are. And you have to really know how the ego works. Yeah. Right, and I found know. that the ego will is very tricky. Oh, and it's it so will Because here's what mine oh. has done. So once it realized <laughs> so that I would no longer respond to fear, mm. right? That I'd be like, oh, ego, you're just trying to scare me. You know, stop it. Um, it started disguising itself as other things like reason, right? Like, oh, this is the sensible thing to do. And then, <laughs> oh, and altruism, it likes to, you know, or, oh, this is, this is the, the higher path, you know, it would, and then later I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and so, it, yeah, it will just try and disguise itself as other good things yeah. that it knows I listen to. Yeah. No, totally. I know. It is wily. It is a wily, crafty creature. It is a wily, crafty creature. Yeah. And I, I was really amazed by how many things on um, on Carolina's list, to me, are like, that's how ego works. That's mm-hmm. how ego works. That how That's how ego works, right. you know? Well, so, if you think of just the name, white supremacy, exactly. right? It's about... Being the ego being supreme and about putting yourself above exactly yeah and because we're we have a culture that that strengthens the ego as opposed to checking the ego do you know what I mean mm-hmm. um, and I think all cultures do that I don't know that we're unique in that I think mm-hmm. that's why every culture and and tradition in the world has a spiritual tradition that comes out of that place right because right. there has to be some sort of counter movement right. Um, to, to be able to keep those things in check. But, um, uh, I think the way I've, I've come to understand ego is that it always wants to be better than or less than someone else. Right. So why would it want to be less than someone else? What's because ego like, um, it's like this little seesaw, Mm -hmm. right? So if I'm better than you, you're less than me. So if something happens to make me flip that, then now, oh, crap, now I'm less than you. Do you see what Mm. I'm saying? And so I think this is one of the uh, things that we can look for in our own conversations, especially when we're looking at racial justice and some of the things that are happening right now. Like, when we're in ego... It's that either-or thinking, right? Yes. You're either better or you're not good enough. Exactly. So the white supremacy, and it's... And again, like, I can't... We can't emphasize this enough. We're not talking about, like, swastika tattoo, KKK. Like, this is everywhere. It's really, really... um, It's really, really insidious. And we all have unexamined bias. And Mm -hmm. and it's woven into all those kind of things. But the white supremacy is going to make the ego happy because now we're better. Right. For all these very subtle reasons, because we can be places on time and we get things done and we're very efficient and we're, you know what I mean? Like Mm. all this stuff that is ingrained in that kind of culture. But then the moment someone pops our bubble and makes us realize like, uh, well, actually you're kind of like everyone else. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like, (gasps) oh no, oh no. Exactly. So now all this shame floods in, Mm -hmm. right? And now we're less than. Right. Like feeling Well, and I think there's something about putting yourself above others that on a instinctual level we know is not right. And so I, I think it's sort of that reaction of, aha, you got caught. Like you just thought right. you were so great, but really you're not. But we think the way <laughs> to escape that is to think we're crap and everyone else is better than us. And that is also ego. Right. It's right. just the other that side of the coin. Also ego. Yeah. And so I've called it like what we normally, when we talk, when we say someone's egotistical, mm-hmm. right. Um, like 
I normally were thinking of what I when call yang ego or young ego, right? That's the sort of like, oh, I'm so fabulous. My hands are huge. Like, right. yeah. So like, those, you know, <laughs> yeah. I know I, right now I have someone that comes it's to mind going, immediately when I think of someone that's right, very egotistical. It's going up and out. Right? Totally. So right. So we think energy. of it as being yeah. this like very arrogant, I'm fabulous. All of you people are crap. You should all bow to how fabulous I am. <laughs> um, and I so you're thinking. Yeah. That. And so like there's, um, so there's that, that's what we usually think of when we think of someone as being egotistical or being run by ego. But what I call the yin ego is the, oh, I'm no good at that. You're so much better. I'm just crap. I'm not good like other people. I just have to take what I can get. Yeah. Right. Um, and like, because of that self-destructiveness, right. Mm-hmm. It's easy to see how if you're really, really arrogant and you're not listening to people around you and you think you know everything, like you're going to drive yourself off a cliff. It's really easy to see how you're going to do that because you don't mm-hmm. pay attention to science, right? But same kind of thing. If you think you're crap and you have nothing to offer, right, you're also going to drive yourself off a cliff. You're also not going, right? That's also right. really, really self-destructive. And yeah, that ego is either or. So yeah. like when I've had, um, like... <laughs> There have been people that I've dropped as clients, actually, because they would say, oh, I don't have ego and would <laughs> insist that they didn't have ego. And it's like, OK, well, then you don't need me. Right. Because you got it all figured out. So just <laughs> hurry up and right. get out of my office. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. Um, and those are the people that are the most dangerous right. because it is wily and crafty. Right. And if you're not aware, like anyone that's like, oh, well, I don't have ego because, you know, I just do everything for everybody all the time. And I know that I'm, I'm so humble. Like, yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm so humble. I should get an award for being humble. <laughs> and so, like, yeah, like, um, if you're not looking for ego, it's totally running your ship. Right. Right. Because yeah. you have to be looking for it. If you can't see it, time. that means it's in charge. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. So true. So true. Why is it you? You can't see it because it's driving the car and it managed to turn you around backwards. So right. you're like, I don't see it anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny because it's true. <laughs> but I think back to the back to the urgency, like um, so again with that idea of like we're on, the ego is this sort of seesaw, right? Mm-hmm. That's either better than or less than. Spirit is the fulcrum of that seesaw, right? That's the center place, and so like getting into spiritual practices, those kind of things, those are all aimed at getting us into that fulcrum, Hmm. right? The centered place where we're both exceptional and wonderful and yet like everyone else. Exactly. Yeah. Which is true humility. Right. Humility does not mean I'm crap. Humility means I am a glorious creature of God, right? In my language. And so are you, and so are you, and so are you, and so are you, right? right? Exactly. So it's it's not meaning I'm crap. It's recognizing that I'm I'm not any better than anyone else. But it doesn't mean I'm crap, right? right? It means we're all wonderful. So, um, but like getting getting into that fulcrum, because I've also like like the ego is bound to this planet. Mm-hmm. This planet moves in time and space, so it's bound by time and space, right? So within the ego, there is a sense of urgency because time is running mm-hmm. out. Right. And that's why I associate the ego with, um, with survival and wanting to live is because uh, in that sense, time is limited, right? Because we're all going to die. 
And so the ego is like, we got to get as much done as we can, you know, before the end comes. And that's, like you said, it's right. The ego is going to die because it's going to stay here. Right. But who I am is eternal. Is eternal. Right. right? The observer is not going to die. The observer will will change and go somewhere else, right? Yeah. So matter is never, energy is never destroyed. Matter may be transformed, but energy is I never destroyed. I always remember that, um, the is it the first law of therm- thermodynamics? Is that that matter and energy can never be created or destroyed? And I remember, like I learned at some point in school, and like for some reason, like that has stuck with me throughout the years. Like there was just something about it that I really liked, but I didn't really know why. Um, but yeah, now I see that that's like, oh, that's not just a physical thing. There's like a spiritual aspect to yeah, that as well. Yeah, it's not just a materialist law. Yeah. It is, it is a law of the universe. Yeah. yeah. So, so the, the ego, because it's time bound, has this sense of urgency, mm-hmm. right? And it's freaked out and it wants to get more done. But the, the spirit, the core, the reality, right? That is eternal. Yeah. And so there's not a rush. Right. Right. Yeah. It'll all get done in due time. So if I'm not looking to get credit for it. Yeah. And I'm just here to help yeah. move. Well, and that's the other thing is because the ego. Wants credit. Wants credit and wants to stand above others and wants to be doing as good or better accomplishing as much or more. Right. Than everybody yeah. else. Right? And so if I am like, if I recognize, okay, I am, I'm a shift worker here, mm-hmm. right? I'm here to bring this shift on. It's not about me getting credit for it. It's about mm-hmm. me doing what I'm here to do. Then, then I just do what I need to do. Right. right. And, and if I'm, if I'm not, because if we think about what urgency does to us, if we think about the way that urgency overwhelms our nervous system, right? Mm-hmm. Like anybody that has suffered adrenal fatigue, like they were in the grips of urgency. That's how they got to adrenal fatigue. Right. Like they're right. totally freaked out. They're trying to do a million things at once. They're not taking time to pull back in again. And it totally overwhelms the, totally overwhelms our system right so um but if we're if and the the ego is going to drive us to do that but the spirit recognizes it's not just me there's lots of other people working on this too and i'm going to do my work better right when i'm when i'm not working out of urgency and i'm just focusing on what is the next thing for me fully present yeah here now Right. That's how I get the most stuff done. That's when the synchronicities start happening. That's when we find the people we're going to work with. Right. But if, if, if we're in that urgency space, that egoic space, then we have to work harder and harder and harder and harder. And, you know, we're Sisyphus pushing the, the, the rock up the hill. Like it's always going to roll back down on us. But if we get out of that, then we're in a different vibration. And then we start seeing that things are helping us. Right. Like, it, it just worked like that. The Buddhist, not, it was not Buddha that said it. It's a teacher that said it, but med- meditate 20 minutes a day, unless you're too busy and then meditate an hour <laughs> <laughs> really speaks to that. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. and I think, you know, uh, that like just taking five minutes when you wake up in the morning and five minutes before you go to bed at night is a really great way to start. So that your day doesn't start an urgency. I think mm-hmm. for most of us, the day starts an urgency. We've got an right. alarm that goes off. We immediately reach over and get our phones and start looking at email. We immediately start thinking about our to-do list. And so 
we start the day in a sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. We're not in the present moment. And I found We're something. We're not in ourselves. Yeah, yeah, something about that. You know, when you wake up and, and you start thinking about the day and what you're going to do. Um, I found that there's a very uh, subtle yet very important difference between um, thinking of these are all the things I have to get done today and thinking of it as this is what I get to do today. Yeah. It's a totally, both involve a list of here's what's going to happen, but the energy behind it is completely different. Right. One, there's the urgency of I have to get this done, and if I don't, I'm a failure. And then the other one is this is what I get to spend my time today doing. Right. And you probably have to take some time to get to the place where you can say that, yeah. right? Like, And sometimes it's, you know, realistically, there's a combination of both, right? There may be some things where there are hard deadlines that I have committed to meaning and, you know, I want to honor that. So I'm going to, um, and then, but one of the things that I've started incorporating into my daily practice is I have, um, I'm like, what did I do for myself today? What did I do for, you know, my mission or sort of the things that I feel I'm here to do? Um, and then I put a check on the calendar. So every night before I go to bed, I'm like, what did I do today that was for me, not just to serve someone else? And and if I did something that day, then I put a check. And at first, there were not very many checks on the <laughs> calendar. But now, that was like in January, I think I started that. Um and but now there are most days there are checks. The one on Wednesday, I had a super busy day. I had like lots of meetings, and, and there was no check on that day. And I was like, I started to feel bad about it. <clears throat> and then I was like, okay, so you're human. So it was a full day of other things, and you know, it did is you what do it something is. when you saw that at the end of the day for yourself? Then I went to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I was exhausted. I went to sleep. <laughs> I'm like, does that count as a check? If I just take an hour or two to relax, there are times where I'm like, yep, that counts. Absolutely that counts. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Who was, oh, it was Ariana Huffington that did a TED Talk on how women are not getting enough sleep. Yeah. Right? And, of course, there's so many studies about how lack of sleep impacts yeah. our emotional stability, our reasoning ability, our peace That's of mind. That's something I realized our- earlier when I was thinking it because I'm trying to improve my health. And, and I'm like, you know, maybe you should just start by like getting more sleep. Like just get eight, eight hours of sleep every night and see where that, how far that gets you. Because sometimes there are things like that. Like kind of like when I stopped drinking soda and then lost like 10 pounds or something. Like sometimes there are th- simple things. It's like just do this one thing. It sounds so simple and so basic, but it's like the low-hanging fruit that once you do it, it has Im- results right away. Yeah. 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 So absolutely getting your full amount of sleep is a check for you (laughs) and taking time for an hour to just chill and relax. Right. Like, and not feel guilty while I'm doing it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Because that's the other thing is sometimes I've had things where I'm like, I'm so stressed out. I need to take a day off. And then I take a day off and feel guilty the whole day that I'm taking a day off. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, well, what was the point? <laughs> what did I really get out? Because now, and then you have more stuff. And then that's the other thing, thinking about, oh, because I took this day off, now I have to squeeze five days worth of work and oh four, you know? Yeah, And right. so that's one of the things I've done around time urgency is um, 
is is just saying, does that really have to get done now? Really? Like, what would happen? What bad thing would happen if that didn't get done then? And what I found is that most things are not that. Almost nothing is urgent. Yeah. Really, almost nothing is urgent. Yeah. Like, if you're an ER nurse. Yeah. Then you're dealing with actual urgency. Uh, while you're on your shift. <laughs> right. right. But for the rest of us, chances are, yeah. <laughs> There's very little. And, and, and I've seen that. I was just um, uh, thinking the other day uh, about um, talking to someone about a, a, the whole job search process. And um, there's this thing that happens I've noticed is that a company will say, we want to hire someone. Oh, we want to hire them like right away. Like, can you start next week? You know, that kind of thing. And it's like, I realize now it's like they don't even stop to take into consideration how long it actually takes to like interview people and just go through the whole hiring process. And so it will, they'll say like, oh, we want someone to start next week. And I'm like, okay, so in a month or two, you're actually going to hire somebody, right? Yeah. Like I've just come to learn that, but people get this it in their heads that like, I need to do this right now. I need to, it's urgent, you know? And what that means is like, it just came across your plate and you want to get it off your plate as quickly as possible. (laughs) That's really what urgency is, right? It's just, I, I, this thing has come to my attention and I want to get rid of it. So let's hurry up and do it. That's so funny. Yeah. And I was thinking too, um, like when it comes to funerals and end of life kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, there is this, like that's a, again one of those places where you, where like re- repeating for people over and over again nothing is urgent now mm. right like right. once they've passed you know and it, it, especially if you're talking with people that are in in terminal illness they're at hospice or something like this right like if someone's having a stroke in front of you there is urgency like get on the phone get right. paramedics there there is a sense of urgency for those few moments until the medics are there but you know, if we're dealing with hospice situations and someone has been critically ill, like once they're dead, there is no urgency. Yeah. Nothing's urgent, right? Like this more than any other time in your life is time to slow all the way down. Yeah. And just be here right now, open and present to whatever emotions come up, to whatever is happening in this moment, right? Like, this, this, there is no urgency. Like, they're gone. The, the coroner will pick him up when the coroner comes to pick him up, and the funeral arrangements will get made when the funeral arrangements get made. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there is no urgency. Just be here now. Yeah. This is what is required of you right now. And... And I think that and we've kind of touched on this in other episodes too, but I think this is one of the things that um, underlies so many of the problems that, that we have in our present day society, this inability to be here now yeah. and be fully present to ourselves, fully present to whatever emotions are coming up, fully present to whatever is happening in, in the moment and with the people that we're with. Um, and And it is one of those things that, that death brings us to and the death of those mm. closest brings us to. And we are so averse to it that even in those spaces, we avoid it. Yeah. Right. Like even in those spaces, we want to wiggle away. We want to go do something else. We and wanna... we're not used to it. You know, that's, the, that's one of the downsides of having a society that is so dominated with the sense of urgency is that we have not learned how to deal with a slower pace, how to stop and, you know, be fully present, like you were just saying, 
And um, so that's something that I think is a challenge as we deal with this as well as those other things that were on Carol's list is that having some patience with ourselves and understanding that the reason we're not good at this stuff is because we haven't gotten the practice at it. And, and to say, oh, okay, I'm, you know, I've got to learn how to do this. Yeah. And that's why they call it a spiritual practice. Right. 